If you have your Bible today, will you turn with me now to Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, and the text is printed there on page 10 in your bulletin. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And not not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed it in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He wandered his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Work in us by your spirit, our Father, now as we hear in Jesus' good name. Amen. In 1961, General Borston wrote these words. 
We suffer from extravagant expectations. We expect too much of the world. When we pick up our newspaper at breakfast, we expect, we even demand, that it bring us momentous events from the night before. We turn on the radio as we drive to work and expect news to have occurred since the morning newspaper went to press. Returning in the evening, we expect our house not only to shelter us, to keep us warm in winter and cool in summer, but to relax us, to dignify us, to encompass us with soft music and interesting hobbies to be a playground, a theater, and a bar. We expect our two-week vacation to be romantic, exotic, cheap, and effortless. We expect a faraway atmosphere if we go to a nearby place, and we expect everything to be relaxing, sanitary, and Americanized if we go to a faraway place. We expect new heroes every season, a literary masterpiece every month, a dramatic spectacular every week, a rare sensation every, every night. We expect everybody to feel free to disagree, yet we expect everybody to be loyal, not to rock the boat. We expect everybody to believe deeply in his religion, yet not to think less of others for not believing. We expect our nation to be strong and great and vast and varied and prepared for every challenge, yet we expect our national purpose to be clear and simple. We expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars which are spacious, luxurious cars which are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and reflective, kind and competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin, to be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly, to go to a church of our choice and yet feel its guiding power over us, to revere God and to be God. Never have people been more the masters of their environment, yet never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed, for never has a people expected so much more than the world could offer. That, of course, is not a modern problem, is it? It's just the condition of man. Herman Bovink, writing to teenagers in the Netherlands in 1913, said in the entirety of the life and striving of man, he comes to this, that he does not have enough in the whole world. And that brings us, once again, to the number one thing that Jesus preached. What is it? You all should know this by now. The number one thing Jesus talked about and preached, in a phrase, the Mm, mm, mm. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is what Jesus preached. Because you see, God wants this restless human desire to find rest, to be satisfied. But he knows what we are so very slow to understand. He knows that you can buy 10,000 panes of glass and not one of them will ever give you light. Because you must receive light through them, not from them. God knows that you can eat of a thousand trees and not one of them will make you what only God is. Not one of them will give you what only God can give you. God is life. Amen? And only insofar as all things are rightly related to him do they live. And that is exactly what we mean when we say the kingdom of God. All things rightly related to God, who is the king. How does the kingdom of God come? Well, it comes through the king. Shockingly enough, the king brings the kingdom. It is through him, through Jesus the king, that we come home to the Father, to God, to life. He is the door, as he describes himself here. And in, through him, we enter into this feast. 
where all that God has done through history, all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through the prophets, down to the present moment, and all God is doing throughout the world, from north, south, east, and west, are here at this magnificent party where God reigns and he provides, and it is just so good and delightful. That's the kingdom. We come into that through Jesus. And what I want to do today is I just want to talk for a few minutes about the heart of the king, the heart of the king as he brings the kingdom, which this text shows us, and then I want to talk for a moment about our response to the kingdom. I want to begin today with the willingness of the king, just the willingness of the king to give us the kingdom. Now, at times when Jesus speaks, I'm sure you have felt this reading through the, para, uh, through the Gospels, there are times when Jesus speaks, and he really doesn't sound very inviting. Have you ever noticed this? <laughs> I think Jesus can be the most off-putting person in the Bible sometimes, the way he speaks, because we don't maybe listen carefully. Because if you're careless reading chapter 13 of Luke, you could, you could see Jesus as completely heartless towards sinners who don't repent. He's like, you know, you know that tower that fell on those people in Siloam? You think that's a big tower? What the towers, look at the tower, it's about to fall on you, is what he sounds like. I mean, he just sounds heartless. Like, yeah, they didn't repent, they died. You're in the same position. The hammer's ready to fall. That, that's a careless reading could hear it that way. And in fact, it could actually be, be worse if you're not careful. You could read later when he talks about people banging on the door, you could get the impression that Jesus is just downright hard-hearted towards people who do not repent. Oh, you'll see one day, and then you'll want to be, you'll want grace, you'll want mercy, but nope, the door's closed. It's easy to read Jesus as just very callous. And it's interesting, if you see Jesus as callous and heartless in punishing sinners, how attractive are you going to find his alternative to punishment, which is repent? Because see, when you look at Jesus a certain way, and you have a certain picture of him in your sort of emotional framework, that he's just kind of heartless and cold, and doesn't really care, and it's, you know, it's easy sometimes to, to feel that way about God and about Jesus. If, if, that, if that's how you feel, like God just doesn't care about, you know, the people that he punishes, and, you know, he just, he's ready to bring wrath, and the shoe's ready to drop. When Jesus, when that Jesus in your emotional sort of imagination says repent, you know what we hear? We hear like 13-year-old kids, come home, stop everything you're doing that you enjoy, come home and do chores, like nasty chores forever and ever. That, that's what we hear. Come be miserable, you know, doing all these things you don't really enjoy doing. But of course, that picture of Jesus is just completely backwards. It's, it, a careless reading could lead us to that, but it's just totally backwards. Because w the reason Jesus is even here in Israel at this time in this text is because he... God promised this millennia ago, he is here to crush the head of everything that ruins God's kingdom. He is here to crush the root of every evil in the world, every misery, everything that is wrong with the world, he is here to crush it at its root, at its head. So he's not here to go after that injustice over there or that oppressor over there. I mean, he's not here to go after Rome or any particular system. All of that will be dealt with in its place, in its time. He is here to take out the mothership. That's what Jesus is here to do. He is here to go after that fundamental breach we call sin between God and rebellious humanity. That sin that calls down God's wrath upon us and that sin that expresses our enmity against him, when Jesus cuts the root of that, when Jesus crushes the head of that, deals with that problem, the serpent's going to lose all of his killing power. If God is for you, then all the other restorations our hearts long for will follow in their good time. 
That's why Jesus is here. And so the dominant note, if you're paying attention, throughout his entire mission and ministry is that he wants us to live, not perish. Why is he talking to these people? He says, you repent, so you don't perish. Strive to come through the door. He wants people to be released. He, he's, he's really angered by this ruler of the synagogue in verse 16. Ought not this woman be released? She's a daughter of Abraham. That's the heart of the king. This woman should be freed. That's the heart of the king. He wants restoration. He wants fruitfulness. He wants flourishing. He wants the fig tree to bear fruit, to become what God made it to be and to flourish. He wants people to come in the door and be at the feast. He wants Jerusalem to be under his wings. And he tells us in verse 8, as he describes this fig tree, he is ready to be very, very patient with that. Give it more time. That's the heart of the king. But if you love someone, there's an urgency that increases as you see them running toward ruin. And that urgency does come through in the text. There's an urgency here. And so what we're hearing, that's the heart of the king. That's the willingness of the king. Be saved. Be restored. Ought not you be under my wings. So when that king says the word repent, what he's really saying is this, I want you to come home after starving for years in a slum full of deadly diseases. I want to feed you, clothe you, heal you, set you on your feet, give you a kingdom, teach you how to rule it. That's the heart of the king when he says repent. We'll get to that in chapter 15 with the prodigal son, of course. That is the heart of your king. And I must say, as a pastor, if there is one thing that I wish I could somehow scrawl in indelible ink on every one of your hearts, it would be this question. Do you know your king's heart toward you? If you are lacking spiritual vitality in your life at all, if there is sin, whether it is sins that you commit or sins in just not doing things you should, whatever it is going on in your life where there is spiritual deficiency, it is because at some level you don't really know the heart of your king for you. How much he loves you. How, the unimaginable good that he desires for you and that he has secured for you through his work on the cross and in the resurrection. The heart of your king. If you could for a moment gaze without a veil at your father's face, the face of your father in heaven. Just get a glimpse. If you could look into the eyes of Jesus in his glorified state for just a moment, and you could, God would give you the ability to feel just even briefly this heart that stretches forth its wings over you. That's the heart of the king. Jesus will later weep over this city. That's the heart of the king. It would change everything because when your heart is full of the light of that love, you know that is the heart of my king. He wants my good more than I want it. He loves me more than I could ever love myself. He has demonstrated that irrefutably in t taking his own son and cursing him in my place that I might be raised from the dead with him. When that light of that love fills your heart, you end up then with this immovable inner anchor. And that anchor holds when your life feels nothing like the feast of the kingdom. And let's be real. Often your life feels nothing like the feast of the kingdom. It feels nothing like the glory that our hearts long for. 
But when you know the love of your king, when you know his heart toward you, you can endure all kinds of things with confidence, joy, because if God spared not his own son but delivered him up for me, the rest of this will follow all in good time. And, and I think one of the things that I notice, and the reason I'm kind of leaning into this about the king's heart, one of the things I notice about me and I notice about you know, God's people as I minister, many of us, beloved, we evaluate God's love for us based on our circumstances rather than evaluating our circumstances on the basis of God's love for us. You see, we get it exactly backwards. We're looking at the circumstances and then turning to try to figure out if God loves us based on this. What should be the heart of a true disciple of Jesus is that we are locked on to the love of God for us because it's just made perfectly clear in Jesus, and then we turn back to the circumstances and have a fresh look in light of that love. That's how the early church looked at suffering. It's interesting to look at the early church. They were so sure of the king's heart toward them, so sure of the love of Christ for them. You listen to the apostle Paul talk. How did they then respond to sufferings? When sufferings came, these Christians who knew the love of Jesus, they said, we count it an honor to suffer with Jesus. It's an honor to share in his sufferings. How do modern evangelical Christians respond to suffering? Jesus hates me. He can't be trusted. He doesn't deserve my worship. People walk out of the church because Jesus sends suffering. That's because you're judging Jesus by your circumstances instead of judging your circumstances by Jesus. And the early church, how do they respond to the costs of discipleship? Jesus basically says, I might take everything from you to follow me. How did the early church respond to that in light of the love of Jesus? Their response was, we'd give up anything for this king, anything for this kingdom. How do we respond today? You know, he just keeps taking one thing after another from me. Because you're looking at your circumstances, and then you're trying to figure out where you stand with Jesus instead of the other way around. We've got to know the heart of our king. And it just shouts out from this text, I want to stretch my wings over you. That's the heart of the king. But if the willingness of the king, the desire of the king, the heart of the king, it's just unmistakable in this text and throughout. Shockingly enough, a lot of his hearers, you know what they say? Get out of our slum. Which brings us to another emphasis in the text I want to take a moment with. The willingness of the king, that's the foregrounded thing. But also now, the windows of the kingdom. The windows of this kingdom. Because even as Jesus clearly foregrounds here and elsewhere his willingness to save, his desire to heal, his desire to restore, to satisfy, to give rest, that's the heart of the king. He does also make it clear there's a window for response. There's a window for response. Love cannot be, God's love cannot be spurned forever. You can only stone so many prophets. And he describes the kingdom, you know, in terms of the, tr the little mustard seed becoming the giant tree and the birds of the air representing all the nations and rulers of the earth are coming to lodge in its branches and this leaven that fills this lump of dough. That's the kingdom, and, and, and that's, that's a picture of the fact that through all times and all places, well, that's what God's doing, right? He's bringing his, the life-giving influence. Ezekiel pictures this as fresh water making the salt marshes fresh, turning everything green. That's the kingdom. It, it, it brings this life-giving influence through all times and in all places, but it is punctuated by moments of judgment on stubbornness in responding to it. There are moments in which there's a baptism by fire. The king's grace, the king's heart, it is open-handed. It is willing. It is extremely forbearing. Give the tree another year. That's the heart of the king. You know, one of the things that shocks me as I read Luke's two, two books, 
Luke and Acts. This is unreal. Jesus goes to Jerusalem, preaches the gospel of the kingdom, and gets killed. I mean, he's the son of God, right? There have been, like, how many hundreds of prophets have been killed before him? And then he comes as the son of God. He preaches and gets killed. Guess what he does next when he goes back to the Father's right hand in heaven? He sends a bunch more people to preach the gospel to the very Jewish council who condemned him to death to preach in Jerusalem again the grace of God through the spirit-filled church. That's the heart of the king. But we also see very clearly in this text, it is extremely dangerous to harden yourself against his rule. When this king says, trust in me, and you say, you know, I think I'll trust in something else, thank you. My money, my powers, my planning. When this king says, here's the way to life, and we say, I, I've, got a better, I've got a better way. Jesus says, this is my will for your life. We say, you know what, Jesus, I wish you'd let me take the wheel. When Jesus, this king, says, let me teach you, let, be my apprentice, and we say, I'm busy. I've got important things going on in my life, Jesus. That is hardening our hearts. And here's the question, beloved. What if God lets you keep hardening your heart? See, that's the worst thing that can happen. If God lets you keep hardening your heart, He says, very well, have it your way. You never want Jesus ever, ever, ever to tell you, have it your way. That is the worst thing he could say. Sure, take the wheel. What if he does that? Because he could. This is why one of the most merciful things we can ever do in evangelizing those who don't yet know Jesus is just lovingly, graciously expose and kind of deconstruct their false gods, their rival gods, their rival messiahs. One of the things you can do that is such an act of love towards someone who doesn't worship Jesus is just show them, you know, you might not be interested in Jesus, but here's what you're trusting in. Here's what your hope is. Here's where you find comfort. Here's where you find security. Here's where you're seeking satisfaction. And here's why it doesn't work. Here's why it's empty. And it will, and it, it will inevitably end up being like sand in your hands when you're searching for water. And what are you doing? You're breaking up that hard soil so there might be some receptivity to Jesus. That's an act of mercy. It's also why Christian parents don't, don't just focus on your kids' behaviors. What you're seeking is that their hearts are receptive to the word of the Lord. But I think many of us would listen to what I'm saying now and say, sure, yeah, and that would, but, you know, hardening our hearts, that would never be our response to Jesus. I mean, we're Christians. You know, when God speaks, we're, we're wide open, we're good soil, we're, we're, we're ready. We're ready to, to hear and take it in and kingdom can just flow with us. Can I remind you of something that's very sobering in the Gospels, and that is Jesus' strongest warnings about hardness of heart and about judgment from God. His strongest warnings about all of this are for people who are thoroughly churched. Now, no sooner do I say that when I need to tell you what I'm not about to do. I am not, right now, going down the road of the kind of preaching some of you have sat under, and so have I, that squints at buildings full of saints like this one and says, are you guys real Christians? I've heard enough sermons like that to last me for all eternity. And basically what that question is getting at is, have you had a particular kind of spiritual experience that shows you're really truly born again? That's, the, that's what that preaching is after. And I regard that kind of preaching as perverse. I hope you never hear it from this pulpit. 
because what the main effect of that kind of preaching is, and I've had to try to heal <laughs> under God's grace, heal people from that kind of preaching, what it does to people who are trusting in Jesus and they hear that kind of, are you really trusting? Are you the real thing? What it really does is it keeps people who are seeking rest in Christ it keeps them from resting in Christ because they're constantly being told that what they need to rest in is not Christ, but some experience of Christ. So Jesus and his word are no longer the basis of your rest, your experience, and chasing an experience becomes your basis of rest. And it's terribly spiritually destructive, and that is not what I'm about to say. As I tell you once again, that Jesus' strongest warnings about hardening your heart and being, bringing God's judgment down on you are to thoroughly churched people what then am I saying? There is an enormous spiritual danger for religious, churched people. And y'all are churched religious people, people mostly. And this is the danger. Let's be very precise with it because it's right here in the text with these synagogue rulers and Pharisees. The danger, the spiritual danger for churched people is that we are so sure we have the truth and we are so sure we're in the right that our hearts stop responding to Jesus as Savior and Lord. We're so sure we have the truth, and we're so sure we're in the right, that our hearts actually stop responding to Jesus as Savior and Lord. We're kind of like students at school. Some of you have taught kids like this who think they know it all. <laughs> and they keep going through the motions of school, but deep down their hearts have stopped responding to the teacher because they just don't think they need the teacher because they've already got all, the, they've got all they need. Religious people can be like that. Church people can be like that. The synagogue ruler who doesn't really want these people coming for healing on the Sabbath, and these Pharisees later who c come to Jesus about Herod, these are profoundly churched people. They are Bible scholars. They are morally scrupulous people. But their knowledge, their massive theological knowledge, and their rightness, their moral scrupulosity, it has made them proud. And pride not only makes you callous to grace, it not only makes you callous toward Jesus' saving work because you don't really feel your need of it. I have moments as a pastor, I mean, I preach this stuff every week, and I have moments I realize, you know, I can just feel in my heart a kind of callousness. You ever gotten, I've, I wear a ring, you know, because I'm married. And I get this callous under my ring where I can't feel anything there anymore. And my, I realize my heart can kind of get callous where I'm not really humbled by the shocking reality that G God saved a sinner like me. I'm not amazed by grace anymore. I'm just kind of, there's something in my heart that's just kind of gotten a little bit toughened against that. But this kind of pride, it not only makes you callous to God's grace, it will lead you to relate to God and to other sinners in ways that are at least as bad as the sins of the irreligious sinners. Because toward God, what's the heart of these Pharisees? How do they respond to God? It's interesting. They are so sure they have the truth, they can't hear it anymore. Have you ever met someone who professes to be a Christian and the word of God never unsettles them? They're so sure they already know the truth that it doesn't even rock them anymore. They're not like, wow, God is speaking, <laughs> and I'm under the judgment of that word, and, and, and I need it. 
I mean, interestingly, in Jesus' time, the really bad sinners, they're kind of rocked when Jesus speaks. The Pharisees are completely unmoved because they, they they've got the truth. And they're so sure they're right. They're no longer receptive to Jesus' lordship. There is no heart in these Pharisees and rulers of the synagogues to say, I need to be ruled by you, Lord. I need a king. I need to hear you. I need to obey you. I need to be changed by you. Work in me. Be my king. So while the very bad, irreligious sinners, in a way, are running to Jesus, they're not. And how about, how do, what's their response toward other sinners out of this spiritual pride, this religious pride in all that they know and in all of their rightness? Well, even as pride keeps us from receiving grace, because we just don't really feel very much our need of it, it also keeps us from extending grace. Have you ever noticed that sometimes the most graceless, harsh, censorious people in the world are churched people? One indicator of a heart that is what I would call Jesus-adjacent to use the popular term. You ever, you ever met people that are kind of Jesus-adjacent? You know, we were there for the sermon. You know, that's being Jesus-adjacent. But they're not humbled before him. One indicator of that heart is just how you look down on other sinners. There is something in these people who report about the Galileans who were murdered and the people on which the tower fell. There's a little bit going on in their hearts of they must have deserved it. They're kind of like Job's friends. You know, Job, nobody gets the, this kind of beating from God unless they deserve it. And Jesus has to say to them to kind of cut through their self-righteousness, do you think that these people were worse sinners? Do you think there was something especially bad about them? This ruler of the synagogue, what's his reaction when this poor woman comes to, to Jesus for healing on the Sabbath day? You know, these people just want a handout. Get out of here and come back on one of the six days. That's the heart toward Suffer, the suffering of this fellow sinner, this daughter of Abraham. I even wonder if in verse 23, when Jesus gets this question as he's journeying, someone says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And you, you sometimes will get with religious people almost this sense of we're kind of the remnant and maybe only a few are saved like us. And I wonder if Jesus is kind of cutting through that a bit in his response to that question. And this is something just to be aware of when you feel that thing inside of you that is dis kind of disgusted as you look at sinners. I mean, we should have a kind of moral revulsion at evil. But, you know, this weighs on me a lot now, this kind of pharisaical spirit. As I hear professing Christians now speak in public about cultural issues, and it is escalating right now in ways that are just kind of amazing to me. As I hear many professing Christians speak in public about cultural issues, I'd have to say I also hear this a lot, even as I listen to Christians having in-house theological debates with other Christians they disagree with, or discussions about other Christian things with other Christians they disagree with, what I often hear, what so often just drips from the rhetoric, is just this spirit of superiority and disdain even a desire to crush. And it can be very hard to discern in these voices that are supposedly representing Jesus, very hard to discern the spirit of the one who when he was reviled, even on Twitter, didn't revile in return. It is hard to hear sometimes in public Christian rhetoric a desire prayerful desire 
for the salvation of these enemies. It is often hard to hear in public Christian rhetoric today a sober awareness that you can sin a lot in confronting sin. John Newton once wrote a letter about theological controversy. If there's one thing we ought to care about, it is to get doctrine right. But he wrote to his friend about a, the spirit in which we conduct, even pushing for the truth in theological matters. And I love this one line from the letter. He says to his friend, you're on the strongest side. You're in the right. For truth is great, and it must prevail. But I would have you more than a conqueror, and to triumph not only your adversary, but over yourself. Triumph not only over your adversary, but over yourself. See, that's the spirit of one who, even in confronting error and wickedness, is very aware. I myself have the worm of sin within my own heart. That dragon is within, and there is a humility and a measuredness, and the rhetoric should reflect it. That's the heart of Jesus. And where there is pride, and where there is hardness of heart, judgment will come. I have watched Jesus close churches. I have watched and experienced the king chastening proud Christians, including me. And I expect more of that from his kindness. And sometimes the king will actually expose a hypocrite who has mouthed the gospel, but whose heart has not received it, has stopped responding to Jesus as the savior that I need, the Lord that I need. And so, beloved, let me close by saying this. If Jesus right now in your life is showing you how much, please hear this for your encouragement. If he is showing you how much you need his mercy. See, I hate it when Jesus shows me my sin. I hate it. Because deep down, I don't want to see myself as that ugly and that needy. But if Jesus is showing you your need of his mercy, your need of his wisdom, if you are just feeling bewildered, I need God's wisdom. If you are feeling a need for power, I just feel my own weakness. If you are feeling the need for, to have Jesus direct you, Lord, I, I'm just more and more aware that I'm, I can never be more than a stupid sheep who needs a shepherd. If Jesus is showing you that, if he's showing you that you need to be formed, that I'm just not doing those things I ought to do, and I'm doing so many things I ought not to do, and I need a, a master to apprentice me, if Jesus is showing you these things, do you realize, beloved, that is evidence of how much Jesus loves you. Because let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Jesus loves you more than you ever could. And if he shows you your need of it, that too is grace. Amen. And so, Lord, give us peace. In you, in your name we pray. Amen.